You're listening to Bethany Radio. More content is available on iTunes or online at BethanyBibleLeroy.com. Romans chapter 8 is where we're going to head. And as you're on, we're going to look at verse 5. I'll I'll start in verse 1, but we'll look at verse 5. We've got a picture from last week from Gemma this week. And Gemma gave us this. This is later on, and we're going to get to this book, but this is kind of what I used as this title of this series through this chapter, knowing all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. And he who loved us is the Lord God who has done this for us as, we, as Milt was praying and we're thinking about what God has done for us. And so thank you, Gemma, for drawing that. And uh, the rest are up there in the, in the front entrance. Um, and as Brandon was mentioning, um, Ethan and Addie, in case you don't know who Addie is, she's with us today, right? Not right now, but, uh, and little Eliza is with us this time, so you can get to know them. So um, if you're not familiar with those names, uh, glad they're here with us and we could be praying for them as well. Let's come to God's Word here. Romans chapter 8, verse 1, and then I'm going to read through verse 8, and really our study today is... Verses 5 through 8 says once again, There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the Spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. For God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do by sending His own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh. And for sin, He condemned sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us, who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. For those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh, but those who live according to the Spirit set their minds on the things of the Spirit. For to set the mind on the flesh is death, but to set the mind on the Spirit is life and peace. For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God, for it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. Join me again once in prayer. Lord, again, we just come to you and just ask that you would guide us as we study your word right now, as we're particularly in verses 5 through 8, and we're thinking about the flesh and death and life and peace and the spirit, and hostility, and our inability to please you, and your great ability and loving kindness to save us. Lord, drill the truths of our own sin deep that we might glory all the deeper in Jesus Christ today. And I pray that you'd guide us as we study and think through this particular passage. We trust in your spirit to do this through your word. In your name, amen. Well, I think really we stopped at verse 8, but I think really you could put verses f- 5 and then down through 11 kind of into a section, but for time's sake, and just to kind of set them apart, we're dealing with 5 through 8 today, and then Lord willing, we'll look at verses 9 through 11. If you want to look at them through the week, we'll look at those next week. And the outline really comes from the end of verse 4. So that's kind of where this picks up. So 5 is not just out there. It 
kind of carries on from 4. In verse 4, Paul's describing two different people, saying there's those who walk according to the flesh, and that's going to be kind of our main study here in 5 through 8, and then those who walk according to the Spirit. We'll see that in verses 9 through 11. Now, our verses today, they're not entirely on the flesh. We're going to see talk and Paul speaking about the Spirit, but, but the flesh seems to be the main, the main thrust here. And so as we think about the flesh once again and sin, the question might come, well, hasn't Paul, hasn't he already laid these things out? I mean, isn't, is he just repeating himself again? Haven't we covered this ground? And for sure, he spent the first part of the letter of Romans making sure we all knew that all, all, all are under sin. In fact, if you look back, since you're in Romans, you can look back at chapter 1, just page back a little bit. And just see this. This is kind of where we've been. It's always good to review and go back. We've been here before. But uh, particular verses 18 through 32, I won't read all of them, but just look at verse 18 of Romans chapter 1. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made, so they are without excuse. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give, this is interesting for today, give thanks to him. But they became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. And it goes on to speak of this exchange of God's glory for the things of the world, exchanging truth for a lie, exchanging natural relations of men and women for unnatural. And then just look down at this chunk at the last part in verses 28 through 32. And since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not to be done. They were filled with all manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetousness, malice. They are full of envy and murder and strife, deceit, maliciousness. They're gossips, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless, Though they know God's decree that those who practice such things deserve to die, they not only do them, but give approval to those who practice them. It's quite a list. If you read through that list, it's really a list of condemnation, a list for those given up to a debased, a perverted, and immoral mind. And a mind that as we come back into chapter 8, verses 5 through 8, as we look at that, really a mind of the flesh. So as we come back to chapter 8, now verses 5 and 8, what is Paul, is this a review? What's going on here? And just to think of the context in verses 1 through 4 that we've already looked at, again, that great verse 1, anchor there, there's no condemnation for those in Christ Jesus. God has done. God has done. What the weakened flesh could not do. God has sent His Son. God has sent His Son in the likeness of sinful flesh. 
and for sin and to condemn sin in the flesh. And then we get to these opposing lives, these, those who walk according to the flesh and those who walk according to the Spirit. A little bit more on context. The late Martin Lloyd-Jones, he would say chapters 6, 7, and 8, three chapters, all those three, they're actually tied together. Seeing the first five chapters of Romans really is more our, looking at our legal justification before God. When we think of justification, think of God declaring us righteous, not based on our own righteousness, but that imputed righteousness of Christ, trusting in Christ, what He has done, taking the penalty of sin on the cross, granting us His righteousness, justification. And we see this, and it's by faith in Christ. But then, as we got into chapter 6 and 7, and now we're in 8, that those whom God justifies, those ones are those who have been born again by the life-giving Spirit of God And so they put their faith in Christ, and they are those who walk in this newness of life. It's it's the characteristic of really every Christian, every normal Christian. And so reflecting on these chapters, Lloyd-Jones, he comments, he says, Our salvation in Christ is not partial. It is an entire, a complete salvation. That is that, as Milt read from the the end of Ephesians 2, God's work does not stop at a declaration of righteousness, but He's also aiming at transformation in our lives. It's, It's both and. The normal Christian is the one who who lives in Christ and then walks like Christ. And so here we come to these verses, and for the sake of contrast, and then I think God's glory and salvation, Paul sets up, kind of this one, those in the flesh, against the other, those in the Spirit. And, and I hope you're going to hear in this just a resounding, and such were you. I was thinking about that passage. I think, it might, I think it's in 1 Corinthians 6 where it says, Paul lists off the sins and says, and such were some of you. We looked at that in our counseling class, I think just last week. And we say, that was me. In fact, 2 Corinthians 5 says it like this. It says, therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a... You could almost fill in the blank, couldn't you? He's a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. Verse 18 declares, all this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to Himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. So for those in Christ, though the battle rages, as we saw in chapter 7, For those in Christ, this this one in the flesh is not you. And so we want to let this journey to recount what is life in the flesh that it would result in glory. Glory to God for what He has done. So having said all that, let's look at verse 5 then. And we'll just kind of take these one by one. Work them out, work them through and study. Verse 5 then says, For those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh. But those who live according to the Spirit set their minds on the things of the Spirit. Now, if you're reading an an ESV version, English Standard Version, you're going to read for those who who live. You've got that word, for those who live according to the flesh. If you've got an NASB, I think you've got for those who are of the flesh or something like that, and the others, I don't know. You fill in the blank what you have. In, a, in a, just a quick study in this word, 
most, this Greek word that's used here, live or are, it's most often translated as are. They are and not living. You might say, well, who cares? What does that, what does that matter? It's, I'm not saying the ESV, low am I. I'm like little translator, like doing all the helps with the computer that I can. I'm not here to say, ESV got it wrong. I'm just saying I think the are is helpful. Why? Because I think it points to us, we're not just momentarily living in the flesh. It's Paul's getting at those who are in the flesh. They, they, that is who they are. It's their being. The, the, the man really in the unregenerate state. The, the sinful man without God. A man without the Spirit. Living in the world of Romans 1 in the passions of the flesh. That's this, this, this one who, who is or who are according to the flesh. And these ones have then their minds that are set on the things of the flesh. What does it mean to have a mind set on the things of the flesh? One writer sees this not only to kind of to, to think of or to understand or to attend to a thing, but also to mind it, to value it. So thinking of the mind set on the flesh, to mind it, to value it, and to take great delight in it. Another writer would say this is one's really one's worldview. This is how you view the world in the flesh. And so a mind set on the flesh, a mind really, literally, of the flesh, delights in and values what is of the flesh. And this is contrasted then with the mind that's set on the Spirit, again referring to the Holy Spirit, this Spirit of life that's set us free in Christ Jesus, that Christ died for our sins, and, and that by His Spirit we walk in this newness of life. In verse 4, you've got this phrase, in order that the, the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us. And I think it's connected then to our walking according to the Spirit. You might say, how is this, how is this connected? Again, Doug, Doug Moo, I've used him before. He helps us understand that our Christian behavior, how we act, what we do, our walking in newness of life, it's not how we fulfill the righteous requirement. Christ already fulfilled that, but he notes this. He says, it is our Christian behavior, our walk, whatever, our sanctification, put in that word. It's the necessary mark of those in whom this fulfillment takes place. God not only provides in Christ the full completion of the law's demands for the believer, I think he's justification, but he also sends the Spirit into the hearts of believers to empower a new obedience to his demands, i.e. sanctification. And so if God is at work to make us alive in the Spirit, to regenerate us, to look unto Christ for our salvation by faith, for our justification, then he is at work in our walk, that our walk that is no longer according to the flesh, though we stumble, but it's according to the Spirit. Paul goes on in verse 6 with an equation of sorts. Those that like math, I think you've got an equation here. Look at verse 6. For to set the mind on the flesh is death, but to set the mind on the Spirit is life and peace. The mind set on the flesh, again, quite literally, the mind of the flesh equals death. It's, it's, you can read it literally, the mind of the flesh, death. There's just not even a verbal there. It's one of those nonverbals. It's just 
the mind of the flesh, what is it? It equals, on the other side, death. And then the contrast is the spirit, equaling life and peace. What about this mind? What about this, this flesh? A mind on the flesh. I don't think Paul means here that our, our physical flesh, our bodies, that they're all evil or everything physically is, is bad. And I think that would tend towards the heresy of Gnosticism. Maybe you've heard of that before. I always struggle, and I still struggle in seminary, to, to really neatly define what is Gnosticism. But if you look it up, one Sam Storms helps. He describes it, a Gnostic, seeing, seeing matter as evil and spirit as good. So the physical is kind of this looked on as evil, and the, the spirit, well, that's, that's the good. And then it, it also within this, there's a seeking to possess then this kind of secret knowledge or Gnostic kind of is where we get the word knowledge from, this a higher secret knowledge. So here I think in, the, in our passage in verse 6, I don't think having a mind in the flesh, I don't think it's death to, to care for your own physical, physical body or, or to eat later on. You say, man, I don't even know that I, I don't want a mind of the flesh. I shouldn't eat anything. You should eat, take care. You should sleep. It's okay to put a Band-Aid on a cut. That's to care for your flesh. I think Paul's after something deeper, something Jesus would say. He would say what, what comes out of a person is what defiles him. For from within, out of the heart of man, come evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, and so on. And so Jesus says all these evil things come from within and they defile a person. Now we act out in our own fleshly can act out sin in many ways. Perhaps the greatest passage to look at, and I love how God works this, is Ephesians 2. So I want you to go there. Let's look at Ephesians 2. If you were paying attention, we've been here already, and I love that. I love when God wants to impress on us His Word and we find it. So look at Ephesians 2. Now, I'm just going to read verses 1 through 3 since we're kind of in this mind of the flesh part. I think Paul here helps us describe what better commentary than the rest of Scripture. He helps us describe what is this connection between the flesh and death. Flesh and death. Ephesians 2, verses 1 through 3. So he says, And you were. Now that were, I mean, just... Praise God, those in Christ are not there anymore, but this is the study. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which, in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. This was the walk of all of us without God. Some of you may have walked longer in that period than us, than, than others. Some, you came to know Christ at a young age, but you can still see this mark as we looked at Romans 7 on you. Of the flesh, but this was the walk. Of, this is the walk of everyone without God in the flesh. It's a walk of death. So, as we head back to Romans eight, 
This idea of the mind of flesh equaling death, John Murray writes this. He says, the principle of death is separation. That's the principle of death. He says, and here the most accentuated expression of that principle is in view, namely separation from God, estrangement from God. That's the mind set on or the mind of the flesh contrasted to the mind of the Spirit where there is life and peace. And so we've got that contrast. Just like we saw at the end of verse 4, just like verse 5, so into 6, life and peace in the Spirit. Life, we looked at John 6 last week, that it's the Spirit who gives life. The flesh is no help at all. We're dealing with peace in the Spirit. Jesus says this in John 14. It's verses 25 through 28. He says, These things I have spoken to you while I am still with you. But the Helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, you see the Trinity at work here, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I have said to you. Peace I leave with you, my peace I give to you. Not as the world gives do I give to you. Let not your hearts be troubled, neither let them be afraid. The world with all of its glitter, the false promises that the world offers, here's life, here's peace, it cannot deliver. True life and true peace is found in those whose mind is of the Spirit, the Spirit of God. And again, John Murray refers to this mind on the Spirit encompassing two things here, the knowledge and fellowship of of God. This is not a mind of life and peace kind of separate apart from God. It's knowledge and fellowship of God. That's where the Spirit brings us to God. Murray refers to verses like John 17, 3, where it says, This is eternal life, that they know you. Okay, what's eternal life? That they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. Knowledge is eternal life. Eternal life is knowing God. Or 1 John 1.3 says, Our fellowship is with the Father and with His Son, Jesus Christ. And so Murray, he remarks here that this, this communion between us and God is the apex of true religion. The apex of true religion is this communion with God by His Spirit at work in us. And so there's this contrast, death and life. Verse 7, though, and then into 8, really takes us to this opposite of peace. What's the opposite of peace with God? Verse 7. For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God. It does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. For those who are in the flesh, it is hostility. It is, you could translate it, I think, enmity toward God rather than peace. That's for all in the flesh. And so this hostility or enmity, it brings out this state of really being an enemy of God. It's us toward Him. And I, I would say in a way, heard rightly, He toward us. Listen to some Scripture. James 4, verse 4 says, You adulterous people, do you not know that friendship with the world 
is enmity with God. Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Webster defines enmity as this. He says the quality of being an enemy, the opposite of friendship, ill will, hatred, unfriendly dispositions, malevolence. He says in part it it differs from displeasure in denoting a fixed or rooted hatred. Whereas displeasure, it's different than just being displeased. There's this rooted hatred. Those who are friends of the world, in a a moral and ungodly sense, they are enemies of God. And so Paul states that the one in the flesh is hostile at enmity toward God. But then I want to just think briefly about God's attitude towards us in the flesh. There's some other scriptures. I'll just read them to you. Proverbs 6, verses 16 through 20 says this. There are six things that the Lord hates, seven that are an abomination to him. Haughty eyes, a lying tongue, and hands that shed innocent blood. A heart that devises wicked plans, feet that make haste to run to evil, a false witness who breathes out lies, and one who sows discord among brothers. These are things the Lord hates. Psalm 5 says, For you are not a God who delights in wickedness. Evil may not dwell with you. The boastful shall not stand before your eyes. You hate all evildoers. You destroy those who speak lies. The Lord abhors the bloodthirsty and deceitful man. And Just in case we think that's just Old Testament talk, Jesus himself, he would call down curses on those who would reject him. In Luke 10, he says, Woe to you, Chorazin. Woe to you, Bethsaida. Cursed be you. For if the mighty works done in you had been done in Tyre and Sidon, they would have repented long ago, sitting in sackcloth and ashes. And even in Matthew 23, Jesus says, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, he calls them. There's a phrase, and I think I've, I think, can't remember when, but I think I've appealed to it myself. There's a phrase that we might use at times that goes like this. It goes something like, God, God loves the sinner but hates the sin. Maybe you've used that. I'm not here to just totally throw out that phrase, but I want to I think about it. There, there's a sense in which it is true that God loves sinners. Does not Romans 5, 8 demonstrate that. God demonstrates His own love for us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. That is surely there. While enemies of God, Christ died for us. God loves sinners. But then we think about what what about those that would persist in sin, that never come to Christ? What about those they never put their trust in Jesus? They never submit to His Lordship in their lives? And at the end of the life, they die. And where do they go? What happens to them? Does God say to them, at least you you tried hard and you meant well enough? As one article pointed out, looking at this, said it's the people. It's not just the people's sins. It's sinful people that go to an eternal torment in the lake of fire. The wicked will perish. Evil will be punished. It's even in the the most famous of verses, for God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son that whosoever believeth in Him should not 
perish, but have everlasting life. Stephen Nichols he comments on this, this phrase, God loves a sinner but hates a sin, and just, just helping us here, he says, we need to understand, as R.C. Sproul said many times, that the smallest sin is an affront to the holiness of God. The smallest sin is an affront to the holiness of God and brings down the thundering wrath of God upon us. Think of Isaiah. If you know Isaiah 6 and that scene of Isaiah before the throne, he sees the Lord on the throne, high and lifted up, the seraphim calling to one another, holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The, the whole earth is full of His glory. And Isaiah sees this. and Does, does, does Isaiah respond? He says, well, I, I know God loves the sinner and hates the sin, and, and I, I know I'm loved by God, but He doesn't like the sin in me. Remember how Isaiah cries out, Woe is me. Cursed be me before this holy God. He says, For I am lost. I'm a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. A glimpse of God's holiness reveals to Isaiah his own enmity, hostility, his own sin. And so he rightfully, he truthfully acknowledges, woe is me. And so in our flesh, without the Spirit, we indeed are enemies of God. And I think even in saying all this, we just scratch the surface of this relationship of the sinner to the magnificent glory and holiness of God. Not leaving out His grace and His loving kindness, but to get a picture of what that is. And so Paul explains that this this mind that's hostile, it's at enmity with God, it it does not, nor is it able to submit to God's law. That's the the last part of verse 7. So God says do X, Y, and Z, and the mind of the flesh says, I don't want to. I refuse. Leon Morris writes, he says, by definition, this this person dominated by fallenness is set on a contrary course. And I can tell illustrations about Peter. He's not old enough to remember, or maybe he'll listen one day, but we're dealing with this at home. Peter, don't touch that. It just keeps, he just, I use this, it's just the illustration just keeps coming up. Don't, no, don't touch. And it's like that thing becomes the thing to touch. The mind of the flesh, it, it, we're just not neutral to God. Kind of like, well, at one moment I'll do this and one moment that. In fact, Paul's clear here. They, they don't submit. They're, they're unable. One cannot submit to God's law, which flows into the conclusion of sorts in verse 8. Look at verse 8 then. So those who are in the flesh cannot please God. Everyone who is of the flesh, of the world, is at enmity with God. They're not submissive to His law or His commands. And those in the flesh, here in verse 8, they cannot win or maintain God's approval since they're not even seeking it. They're, They're not able to please God. Now, interesting here, two times in two verses, we've got essentially the same 
verbal idea. And those that are learning English get excited to learn about verbs. It's a good thing because they help. And then, and then go learn Greek because then, then English becomes, grammar becomes fun. But there's two verses, same verbal idea, is this not able. In the ESV, you've got it translated as cannot. You see the cannot in verse 7? And then you've got, in verse 8, those who are in the flesh cannot. It's really the word, they're not able. They cannot submit and obey or please God. Unable. And so John Murray writes, The apostle, referring to Paul here, expressly states what is to the effect that it is a moral and psychological impossibility for those who are in the flesh to do anything that elicits the divine approval and good pleasure. And he says this, Here we have nothing less than the doctrine of the total inability of the natural man That is to say, total inability to be well-pleasing to God or to do what is well-pleasing in His sight. Well, there's good news for your Thanksgiving week. We are unable to please God. In fact, it is good news if we understand that and see what we need, or rather, who we need. As we conclude just this this section, I want to ask two questions, maybe of two different people here, really. Two questions as we kind of bring this to a close. One would be today, question for you, are you of the flesh? Is your life characterized by death or enmity with God? Only you, you know your heart. Only you can answer this question. You might fool all of us and look really spiritual and look like you're on your way. Today may be the first day you ever even contemplated this in your life. Or maybe you've listened to a hundred sermons here at Bethany and finally today somehow something's different. And like Isaiah, you find your heart crying out, I too am an enemy of God. Woe is me. May I encourage you today to call upon the Lord for salvation. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ whose death is able to pay the penalty of your sin and whose life gives you new life. Don't go away in despair. Let that despair lead you to the cross. And then today, what about you that would answer yes to if I asked today, are you of the Spirit? And maybe not living, you're not perfect, but would you say you're of the Spirit? You've got a mind towards the things of God. You, you want to do right, and yet in Paul, you, you struggle, and you've got this, this law at work and the, the war going on, and yet there's this desire, there's a Spirit. You've been brought to life by God. Then again, oh, what thankfulness ought to characterize our lives. That in this world of sin and death, you, dear Christian, have life and peace. You know, as we talked about today, you don't have a lifestyle of rich and famous, but you've got true life in Christ. And do you know God? Do you have fellowship with God? Do you know Him? Do you know what the gospel is? Have you accepted, received Christ as your Savior? Then thank the Lord. Thanks be to God because that is from God. That is from Him.
And so may we rejoice, even this week of thanksgiving, rejoice in utter thankfulness. Yes, I am thankful our house is warm. I'm thankful for friends, for my family, for a good job, whatever, fill in the blank. But may we ever sing and rejoice that though you in Christ, though you once were an enemy of God, have been purchased and ransomed with the blood of Jesus, that you might have eternal fellowship, communion, and to know God eternally. That's all from God, and it's all to His glory. Let's pray. All glory be to you, O Lord. And where we are prone to steal that glory back, forgive us. Lord, as we move towards that Thanksgiving day on Thursday, but more broadly, as we move and operate in our lives, for those that are of the Spirit, those that have come to Christ, may our lives be characterized by thankfulness and to put to death the, the, the grumbling and the complaining and the, the bitterness, maliciousness, the hatred, tempted to anger, knowing who we are in you by your grace. And Lord, I pray for those here who have not yet submitted to you, that have not yet come to you for salvation. May today be that day of salvation. And may they rejoice that it is you, O God, who have brought them from death to life through our Savior, Jesus Christ. All praise and glory to you, Lord. You've been listening to Bethany Radio, a production of Bethany Bible Church in Leroy, Minnesota.